It's very clear that human beings divide into us and them groups, that we do it for many reasons. It's the reality of life. If you're a sports fan, you know that it's necessary, right? That you divide into teams. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't have the Cowboys and Eagles rivalries, right? Or the Union and Red Bull rivalries if you're a local soccer fan. We divide in groups. It's necessarily, not necessarily a problem. Of course, we can do it sinfully. We can do it in broken ways or we can do it in healthy ways. We wouldn't be able to educate people very effectively if we did not divide into smaller groups of classrooms and slightly larger groups of different schools. Wouldn't be able to govern effectively, and whether or not we do, that's a different conversation, right? But we wouldn't be able to govern effectively if we, if we didn't have groups and leaders and varying levels of structures. We divide into groups. It's, it's a reality. It's part of being human. The question is, does it have to lead to divisiveness? You know, we divide, but do it, does it have to lead to division? To arguments? To hostility? And worst of all, to contempt for those other people? Whatever the group. So as we turn to Psalm 36 again this week, as we wrap up our two-week look at Psalm 36 and our whole series on the Psalms over this summer, as we turn to Psalm 36, I want you to see in this Psalm a way out, a way that you can take that you're not divisive. Whatever other people do, that you would show what it's like to handle differences, to engage with them, whoever they are, but especially if they are those who do not know God, do not follow Him. It's so critical for us who name the name of Jesus, for us who seek to follow the Lord, to understand how to engage people who are different and how, how we can live healthily in our culture of contempt and division. So if you would, please read with me Psalm 36. We focused last week in particular on the first few verses. We'll look at the rest of the psalm, Lord willing, today. Psalm 36, verses 1 and following reading the subtitle first, for the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Verse 1, the transgression, or I'm sorry, transgression, speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. It flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments 
are like a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. This is God's word. Lord, would you bless your word to our ears, to our hearts, to the world around us as you transform us to be more like Jesus. Would you do that work in us today, we pray, trusting you will, because we come in the name of Jesus and believe your spirit is at work among us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just reading uh, in the last couple weeks about some different surveys and research about division and groups and us and them. And really, our current political state, our situation in the United States is one that really helps you see just how divided we are, so I keep hitting on these kind of statistics. For example, one poll not too long ago, survey found that 36, or I'm sorry, that those who identify as Republicans estimated that 36% of Democrats are atheists or agnostics. What do you think? Higher or lower? How many Democrats are atheists or agnostics? Well, Republicans said 36%, but the real number is 9%. Much, much lower. Republicans also estimated that 38% of Democrats identify as gay, lesbian, or bisexual. The real number is 6% of Democrats. On the other hand, Democrats, to be equal opportunity, Democrats estimated that 44% of Republicans make over $250,000 a year. What do you think? Is it a little less? The real number was 2%. 2%. Those who identify as Democrats think that almost half of Republicans make like $250,000, a quarter of a million dollars a year. And it's really only 2%. Likewise, a similar number, Democrats estimated that 44% of Republicans are 65 or older. The real number is less than half that, 21%. And I say these things not to make fun of either, or to make fun of both, maybe, be the way to put it, but to recognize that we would realize that there is, as one of the authors of the study said, the parties in our heads are not the parties in real life. That who we think they are is not necessarily who they really are. These, the author of the study said, these misperceptions 
are one of many factors fueling the contemporary partisan gulf, the big divide in politics that is just getting worse year after year between the two parties. But it's not just political parties that have us and them problems, right? It's just about every us and them. So much so that a combat journalist born and raised in the United States who does his work because he's a combat journalist, mostly overseas, is reluctant and dreads, in a way, coming back home to the United States because, he says, people speak with incredible contempt um, depending on their views about the rich or the poor, the educated, the foreign-born, the president or the government, so many things. He says it's a level of contempt that is usually reserved for enemies in wartime, except now it's applied to our fellow citizens. That's a combat journalist who has seen people talk about enemies in war and comes back and says, you know, the way we talk about each other in the United States is very much war language. And that doesn't just apply in politics. It applies urban and rural, employers and employees, majority cultures, majority cultures, rich, poor, Christian, non-Christian. Our group, whoever it is, tends to look down on that group and not only be angry about what they decide, but begin to hold them in contempt, to devalue, dehumanize, and drag down others. So I bring that up, not to be gloom and doom, but in fact, that we, who are here, most of us, as I'm looking around this room, would say, I'm a Christian. And I want you, Christian, to realize that the culture in which you're living, the news and social media, everything that you are drinking in, has some poison in it. And it will infect you. It already has. And it will take God's intervention, essentially, for you and I to live differently as God would have us to live as especially we have this high calling and task to not just be us and all alone and separate, but to be us for the good of the world. That others might come not to know that they're wicked and horrible and have no hope in a future, but to know there is a hope in a future. That God is a God who is at work and will save and deliver and can bring about peace. Not just between human beings, but peace in our hearts forevermore. Right? So that framework, that perspective, is what Psalm 36 is very, very, very much about as we consider this most important division between us and them, between those who follow God and those who don't. The way to persevere in that, in, in a divided culture at all, but especially to persevere in our culture today, is to rise above it. You can rise above the divisiveness. You can rise above the hostility. You can rise above the contempt. It doesn't have to be a part of us. 
even as we engage them, whoever they may be. The way you do that, though, is somewhat challenging. It's laid out in this psalm. It's to lift your eyes to the Lord of loving kindness. It's to lift your eyes to the One who is above us and them. That's the only way we're going to be able to rise above it is if we lift our eyes to the Lord. To the One who is above us and them and who actually enters into our relationships for good and not for evil. This perspective that Psalm 36 gives us will free us from us and them thinking. And we're going to look at that carefully today. That's what the root problem is. We're going to see how to rise above it. And Lord willing, how to carry on in a healthy way. So first of all, this, the root problem. The scripture here before us in Psalm 36 says, the, the root problem is darkness and destruction. First of all, within the heart of humanity. You see this in verse 1 and 2 as David poetically pictures the problem. See a little poetry in there? David poetically pictures the problem by treating transgression as if it were a person within speaking. Verse 1, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. He's, he's talking about what's going on within the ungodly. What's going on inside of a human being? A perspective that God alone has. I don't know if you realize that or not, but your own perspective on what's going on inside of yourself is not as accurate as God's perception and perspective on what's going on. He sees clearly. We are so biased, right? We excuse everything we do, try to find reasons and rationalities, and God just looks at it and says, yeah, it's right or wrong whether you're ungodly or, or godly, right? That's, that God has that perspective. God alone has it. And here in the Scripture, right, He's providing that view and what's going on. Better view than we even have of ourselves, especially if we resist God. And that's essentially the definition of the ungodly as it's used in the Scripture. It's a shorthand for someone who chooses to do what is wrong or harmful according to God's standard. That's all ungodly means. It means to choose to do what is wrong or harmful according to God's standard. One, one commentator puts it this way. In the Old Testament, the root, rasa here, ungodly, appears as the most important antonym or opposite of tzedek, righteousness. Ungodly is the opposite of Righteous. Righteousness, one preacher puts it this way, I really like this. Righteousness is a zeal for doing what is good and right, what is fitting, when, okay, it's not just doing what is good and right, it's a zeal for doing what is good and right and fitting when God is taken into account as both sovereign and merciful. In other words, righteousness is doing what is right from a perspective that says God is real. Doing what is right, believing that God is real. That's righteousness. It's the opposite of being ungodly, <clears throat> which makes sense. It's not actually a put-down to characterize someone who does 
who rebels against God and resists his will and who says, I'm an atheist or an agnostic, not, uh, it's not a put down to say you are ungodly. Because by definition, godliness, righteousness, is to seek God's will. And to be careful as we use that language, this is kind of language for us as we consider these things. And the reality is we all have a sense of right and wrong within us. Right? It's not objective. It's often based on our histories, you know, what our parents taught us. It's based on our experiences and how we went through life. It's based on our DNA and our current situation. And it's based on our relationship to God. How we interact with Him. What we believe about Him. So righteousness is that behavior, those desires that take into account a definition of right and wrong that's rooted in the character of God. That's what it means to be righteous. In the case of one who doesn't know God, right? David is picturing here in the psalm transgression, speaking right into their heart, into the deepest self. Transgression being that, that type of of human failure that crosses lines that trespasses where it shouldn't go, that goes too far. So transgression, David is picturing, talking into the heart, right into the heart, line crossing, boundary violations, lack of respect for rules and regulations, right? That's what transgression is. Speaking to the heart, the heart is the deepest part of you. The, the self, that inner reality, that place where you think and feel and decide, the place where you were made to evaluate your actions and your impact on others. And so there's transgression speaking right into the heart. And what is it saying? Verse 2. It flatters. It flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. So what, what transgression is doing, what's happening in the heart, is that the heart is telling itself smooth things. That's the, the, the root of that word for flattery. It's it's telling it's slippery things. Things that go down easy. Rather than raising alarms or alerts about wrongdoing consequences to yourself, to others, much less to God, the heart hears, you are awesome. You're the best. It makes excuses. It blames others. It continues to reinforce you're making good choices. That's what's going on inside this dialogue that sounds something like God uh, gave us a good picture of this in Deuteronomy 29. He's talking about blessings and curses. He's talking about his relationship with his people. And he says there's going to be some who don't listen. There's going to be some who hear these words and they bless themselves in their heart saying, I'll be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Deuteronomy 28, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 29, 19. I will be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Though I do not listen to what God says, though I ignore the conscience within me, I'll be safe 
It'll be okay. That's the flattery. That's the deception going on in the heart. As Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? There's no interest in, in discovering the wrongdoing, it says there. Verse 2. Discovering iniquity, that's that third form of human failure that twists standards. Uh, we had that and uh, transgression. We talked about those. And the other form of human failure all the way back in Psalm 1 when we started this series. But iniquity is the twisting of standards, calling good bad and bad good. And when transgressions at work in the heart, when there's this deception, this flattery going on, we don't turn from this sin. We don't hate it. We don't own it and confess it, is what verse 2 is talking about. That'd be bad enough, but what happens is, in verses 3 and 4, that not only is this darkness and destruction within the heart of humanity, it comes out to harm others. Just read verses 3 and 4 with me. The words of His mouth this is the ungodly, the one with transgression speaking in the heart. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. Wickedness is a sense of, of sorrow, of causing trouble and harm and hurt for others. The words of his mouth, verse 3, are wickedness and deceit. He ceased to be wise and to do good. He's telling not little white lies, but planning and purposing hurts and harms. Look at verse 4. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil or, or wrong. One commentator summarized it all very well, saying that ungodliness is a behavior not only contrary to God's character, but also hostile to the community and which at the same time betrays the inner disharmony and unrest of a man. Right, there is in ungodliness a contrariness to God's character and a hostility to what makes community happen. In, in other words, what? That, that brings division and divisiveness. It's way more than merely preferences. What the Scriptures are telling us here is that there is way more to this than you have your truth and I have my truth. If what we say about God is true, and that's the big if, right? And if you choose to not believe that, if you choose to go a different direction, then there is no place you can go that will not eventually bring about harm and hurt to other people. That will not bring about harm and brokenness to yourself and to your relationships. And if you flip it around and try it the other way, if you say, what if there was a God? And what if I applied what He says here throughout the hall of Scripture? What would happen? What would happen? Would life be miserable and broken? Now read the Bible and find out. No, it would, be, it would be so much better. Even if I got better. Even if you got better, right? Things get better over time. And it is a fallen world. So the problem is just that. This darkness and destruction within the heart of humanity that comes out 
to harm others. But it's interesting, it really struck me as we were reading the passage today, that that transition from verse 4 to verse 5, it's just jarring. David, as he writes the psalm, doesn't just focus. In fact, he abruptly gets away from this darkness and destruction to the light and life and hope. Like someone suddenly turning on the lights in a dark room, right? You're squinting. It's jarring, but it's good eventually, right? So what, what we see in this second set of verses here in verses 5-9 through nine is, is the path to rising above. Rising above with love. That's what's described here in verses 5-9. through nine, That life and light, whereas darkness and destruction are in the heart of human beings, light and life are in the heart of God. He shows us with uh, four key terms that have one clear result. Four key terms. Look at verse 5. Your loving kindness extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness, that's the second term, reaches the skies. Your righteousness, the third term, is like the mountains of God. Your judgments or justice are like a great deep. Four key terms. Meditate on these. If if you have... uh, Bible tools, either you know, a hard copy of a lexicon or something like that, or you, you go online, it's much easier today to do these things. Search these terms out for yourself. But listen right now, just highlights, these four key terms. Loving kindness. This is a huge word, although it's only three letters in Hebrew. A huge word for our theology, for our understanding of who God is. In the, in the Hebrew, it's chesed. You've got to spit when you say it. Chesed. Chesed. The underlying attitude of wanting what is best for others. That's God's, that's a fundamental characteristic. Just the way we try to translate it in English, we've struggled for centuries to find a good way to say it. I like loving kindness. Loving kindness. This, This underlying attitude of wanting what is best for the other. The loving attitude of the Lord that leads him into binding relationships with broken people. That's chesed. That's loving kindness. The fundamental attitude of God for your good and my good that would lead him into binding relationships with broken people. We call those covenants. We They flow from God's desire for our good. Which leads to the second characteristic. His desire for our good is something that does not stop. He is faithful. Faithfulness here is all about an ongoing dependability that is firm rather than wavering. David at the end prays, Lord, let me not be flitting away from You. This is the opposite of that. This is the Lord fundamentally stable and firm, solid rather than bent or broken. It's about fidelity. It's about commitment. It's about staying strong 
That's faithfulness. You know, that picture in Exodus 17, strange thing happening, and we don't have time to get into it, but where, where the, the, the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt, they need to go into their first battle, and the Lord says to Moses, you know, hold up the staff. And when he held up the staff, the people conquered, you know, the, the people of God won the victory, but when his arms wavered, they started to lose. So he holds up and they win, they hold and lose. And what happened? Aaron and her come alongside Moses and hold his arms up. So his arms would be steady. His arms would be faithful. Right? God is not like you and I. He, he doesn't need support. He just is faithful. Right? He doesn't waver. Righteousness, the third key term. The general idea is conforming to a standard or moral code, doing what is right as defined by that code, in the Bible, of course, this is God's own character. God, God, God doesn't obey the law. God, God doesn't keep the law. The law flows from God. The law is defined by who He is. This is who He is. And we understand that by looking at the laws He gives, by looking at what He does, to say that is right, that is good. He has a zeal for doing what is good and right. What is fitting. And the last term here, key term, to go with loving kindness, faithfulness, and righteousness is judgments or justice. They're actually rooted in the idea of governing a people. Leading a people. That's why the book of Judges in the Old Testament is called that because it's from this, it's from this same Hebrew stem. And we were like, well, it's not a book about judges, it's a book about leaders, right? But there wasn't the distinction, right? The, the leader of a people was a leader of the people, responsible for not only justice, but for the administrative aspects of government as well. He was the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch in one leader. That's the sense here, that, that justice in exercising government, ruling over a group of people... And the sense here is that God does that in a way that is like the great deep. <laughs> that it's just and somewhat mysterious. Like those deep waters that you don't know what's down there. So there's four key terms about God and His character. If you reflect upon those, and then you see this key result that he says at the end of verse 6. Loving kindness, faithfulness, righteousness, and judgments. Lord, You preserve man and beast. The result of all those four characteristics of God is that we continue to live. That we have anything to eat at all. That, that we are spared from a life that is literally a living hell and that we are able to move around. As he says here, right? That you, O oh Lord, preserve man and beast. The sense of preserving is the sense of delivering or rescuing from trouble from tight spaces. You know, it, the, the Lord doesn't allow us to be crushed beyond measure, but 
brings us out a little bit. And it's hard. It's not perfect, right? But, you know, we're alive. And humanity continues. And, and that's the sense here that this is a very big preservation that's in view. God is continuing His care for all of creation. The sense of that word there of man, is, is, it's in Hebrew literally Adam, Adam. It is the broadest term for human beings. It includes male and female. That God preserves man, and when it's coupled with beasts, it's saying all, all living things. That God takes care of all of them. They preserve, they continue to live by His gracious provision. Because He is loving kindness. Because He is faithful. Because He is righteous. Because He is just. And as we grasp that reality, that, that our preservation is in His loving kindness, verse 7, it becomes precious to us. His loving kindness that all the children at the end of verse 7 may take refuge in the shadow of your rings. Again, a broad term that all the sons of men, all the sons of Adam might take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Jesus would put it this way, that God makes His sun shine on the wicked and the righteous. That He gives rain to both. That God allows humanity in all of its brokenness to continue because He is righteous and faithful and just and loving kindness itself. So as you find that, those aspects of God's character precious, right? you, begin, you begin to lift your eyes to that light, to that life, to that love. You, you are spared from, as David prayed, right, that the, the, the foot of pride would not conquer you. How do you keep the foot of pride from conquering you? That you would begin to have contempt for those people. You, you, you are freed from that by lifting your eyes to this Lord who is loving kindness. And you realize, you know what? I deserve none of this. In fact, if I'm honest with my heart, rather than listening to the flattery lies that are within there, if I'm honest, I have fallen short. If I were to go through the Ten Commandments, I could not say to a one of them, yes, I have kept that perfectly for my whole life, much less for the last ten days. Or perhaps ten minutes. Because these battles are still going on. So if you want to get above the us and them, this is how you do it. You lift your eyes to the Lord and you recognize your position with respect to Him that you only continue to live by His grace and mercy. And that as you begin to find those things valuable and precious in your sight, who He is, you know what happens? As you begin to value and love and appreciate this God, as you begin to walk in His light, you see light, you begin to be transformed. You become like Him because that was always His intention for you. That you would be loving kindness epitomized. That you would be righteous and do what is right and have a zeal for it. That you would be faithful. That you would be just. That's the view here, as we lift our eyes to that, as we begin to walk in that confidence that we have only before God, we can gain the victory over these things. And we can carry on in a healthy way. Just a few brief points to just wrap it up. Right? The heart, the problem, right? The problem is, is death and destruction in the heart. And it comes out. And 
harms others. Does bad, and for ourselves, as it comes out. And the reality is then, brothers and sisters, look. People who don't know God, people who want nothing to do with God, are going to do things that God doesn't like. How do you respond? How does God respond? How does God respond to you who know better when you do what is not right? You who have much less excuse to do anything wrong because you know his will, because he's working in your life, and yet you still choose to do wrong. How does God treat you? Way better than I treat my enemies. Way better than I treat opposing sports teams' players. We can repent of that. We can do better as we look at God, as we see how precious it is that he would treat us as we don't deserve, and then recognize that you know what's going to happen is you're going to be tempted to puff yourself up. As you have successes or failures, you're either going to pay yourself down or tear others down, or you're going to puff yourself up. But you have to look back to the Lord. You know, and, and it's encouraging in this psalm that we do look at evil. We do look at what is wrong. We can see it. We can say, I don't agree with that. I think it's wrong. But before you start doing much more than that, then you lift your eyes to the Lord. As you are reading your feed and social media, as you are watching the news and hearing about what they are doing, watching the sporting events, seeing the other team and what they're doing or their fans or whatever it is, as you're dealing with that other group, that other school, that other employer, your, your competitor in the marketplace, as you look at those things, you look at them, and then before you do anything at all, you lift your eyes to the Lord of loving kindness. And you meditate on how He has loved you, how He has treated you with His loving kindness, His faithfulness, with His righteousness and His justice. And then you pray. As David does here. You pray that that foot of pride would not conquer you. And that their wrongdoing would not lead you away from the Lord. Because that is what you most need. is the Lord. And the beautiful thing is you're in His hands. You are so cared for. You are so provided for. Even, even, even if you do not know the Lord, recognize how He has provided for you and cared for you. That you have life. That you have an opportunity to know Him better. In fact, that's, that's the, the heart of God that He would speak to us. And often that He would bring hardship into our lives. That He would even hurt us. Not for harm but for healing. That He would come to us. That He would make it difficult for us that we might realize that He wants to provide even more for us. He is with us and for us. We're in His hands. And the ultimate testimony of that is that He came into this world taking on human flesh, uniting Himself to us. Not staying in heaven, but coming to dwell among us. God and man together that we might not just see how to live, but we might see the death we deserved. As Jesus took the penalty for our sin, our guilt, our shame, as he died and remained of the power of death, rose victorious over it and broke the power of death. He broke the power of sin. He broke the power of the evil one. And he has sent that same spirit, that power into your heart that you might love, that you might sacrifice, that you might live for Him in a world that is so, so divided 
that is so, so polarized. And as that transformation happens in you, as you continue to not just look at the darkness and destruction that's coming out from them, but as you look at Him who is above all and extends that loving kindness to us, as you look to Him and then are fueled up, you can engage in ways that are super powerful. And one of the biggest things you can do is be there, not retreat. Be there as someone who understands, you know what, they're broken. They're going to make bad choices. And they're stuck listening to the lies in their heart. But I have the light. And I am seeing by the light. And how can I share that light? Obviously, that means we get to the Scriptures. That means we get to say, some point in there, this is what God says. And if you have taken the time at all to build a relationship, if you've taken the time at all to listen to where someone is really at, you're going to hear things that they say that you can agree with and you don't agree with. And you're going to hear things that contradict each other because the lies in the heart are covering up the truth. And if you build any kind of relationship with them, if you listen even for long enough as some of our brothers and sisters do on the streets of 69th Street there, week in and week out, just within a few minutes can hear things and can pull things out and can say, hey, you say this and you say this. I'm confused with sincerity to say, you know what? I don't understand how you put those things together. And if they go, oh yeah, that's a good question. I thought about that. So may I share with you what, how I put them together? Just simple questions, just simple things like that, brothers and sisters, that bring then into the light of the gospel that shows us the problem is in our hearts, but man, the loving kindness of God comes down into our hearts and lifts us up above it. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, your loving kindness extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your justice like the great deep. Lord, You preserve us. Your loving kindness is precious to us. Lord, let it transform us that we might go forth in whatever context to them. Whoever they are, that we might go like You do that we might be so filled with the abundance of Your house and what You have to offer that we might find Your loving kindness so precious that we would have plenty to give others. That we might have enough of Your light to share it with others. That You would continue to show Your loving kindness to those who know You. Your righteousness to those who seek You in their hearts. Lord, spare us from pride. Let not the ungodly drive us away. We know a day is coming. It's as sure as anything else. That there is a day of justice. There's a day when You will hold all accountable. And we thank You that for us who know You, that day has passed. Your, our judgment was paid on the cross with Jesus. Let that motivate us, O Lord, for those who do not yet know You not to go forth in pride, but to go forth in loving kindness. Because You've lifted us up to You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.